You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, August 2nd, 2006. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. With me tonight are the skeptical rogues, Bob Novella. Hello, everyone. Rebecca Watson. Hey, everybody. Perry DeAngelis. Baby, it's hot outside. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, everybody. How are you guys Screw all doing Screw outside. Tonight? It's hot inside. Yeah. Good, Steve. Oh, surviving this heat somehow. Victim of global warming. That's right. <laughs> you admitted it. I'm so glad we got that on tape. In a hundred years, we'll be victims of global cooling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not helping me now. Is no, it? it sure isn't. <laughs> So a lot of creationism in the news this past week. Uh, good news, some good news. Some good, some bad. Some good, yeah. The, firstly, the uh, Creationism Museum has opened in Kentucky. Is it just one room with a big sign that says God did it? That would, I think, have covered it. But they actually, you know, it's a pseudoscientific museum. They have exhibits with bones and stuff, but of course it doesn't mean anything. Uh, the exhibit apparently cost about $25 million. Good. Twenty-one million of that was donated. Donated. Wow. Can you imagine? Here's twenty-one million dollars. Oh, one guy, or is it... no, no, one guy did. I think the most is one guy did a million, but otherwise, most of that was donated. It's still pretty they, handsome. They're, they're going to open up, and they're not going to be in debt at all. And Coulter donated the rest. <laughs> yeah. It is uh, uh, consistent with young Earth creationism. So it is the museum's theme is that the Earth is you know, less than ten thousand years old. So the most extreme, the most extreme form yeah, of creationism. Yeah, basically, basically. A quote from the uh, the founder, Ken Ham, said, If the Bible is the word of God and its history really is true, that's our presupposition or axiom. And we are starting there. There but you go. Starting with the conclusion. There's just some big ifs. <laughs> that is a big if. That's a big if. So Kentuckians can, you know, or visitors, tourists to Kentucky can visit the museum. Congratulations, Kentucky! Should we go pull a Cindy Sheehan on him and uh, pick at the joint? What would be what would be the point, though? <laughs> you know, the news coverage on Channel Fifty Four in Kentucky. That would be fun. That would be funny to do it. You know, we'd have to come up with some very creative signs, very funny signs. It, it would be funny, I think. Could I would do it if it was nearby? I'd do it for an afternoon with everybody. Yeah, if the purpose was ridicule. That, that would, that would be worth it. Well, I think we can all get behind a good ridicule <laughs> session, sure. <laughs> no, not us. I like to hit the closing quote of Ham in the article. Americans just aren't gullible enough to believe that they came from a fish. <laughs> I guess he's right. No. Wait a minute, are you guys saying I came from a fish? Is that what you're saying? God. That one statement wipes out all of evolutionary theory. <laughs> Take that, darling. What else needs to be said? <laughs> well, congratulations, Kentucky, for finally beating out Kansas as most ignorant state. Yeah. <laughs> Round really? of applause for Kentucky. <laughs> That's enough. That's enough. <laughs> Speaking of Kansas, Kansas actually um, is rebounding a bit. They're coming off the ropes. Uh, yep, as number hey. 49. <laughs> <laughs> Skyrocketing. Kansas voters ousted a lot of the creationists from their school board. Uh, in the recent elections. Good for them, good for yeah. them. They basically were tired of being made fun of as a bunch of yokels and, you know, ignorant losers. So they decided to get rid of some get rid of some of the uh the people on the school board who were basically, you know, following their religious ideology by uh trying to oust evolution from Kansas public schools. Last November, the uh, Kansas Board of Education tried to rewrite the testing standards for public school to incorporate language that suggests that evolution is a controversial theory and to promote intelligent design. Whenever these things come into court, at least in the last few years, they have you know, fortunately been found to be unconstitutional. The most recent and, and significant being the Kurtzmiller versus Dover decision from last, last year. Uh, but now, and this happened again in, in about four or five years ago when um, Kansas, this Board of Education, voted to remove references to evolution and the Big Bang from their science standards. Then a couple of years later, or the following year, the uh, 
conservative Christian majority was voted off, was more moderates were put in place, but then, you know, the public lost interest, and then the following year, the uh, they gained the majority again, and then again, start, immediately started working towards, you know, putting in language critical of evolution or promoting intelligent design and the science standards. It's like a fungal growth. It's it like is. You spray it away, and but then the little bits left and start creeping back in. It's, That's right. It's a roller coaster <laughs> of stupidity. <laughs> So once again, you know, the moderates are, are, in, are in the majority on the Kansas school board. We'll see how long that lasts. But you're right. I mean, the, the uh, creationists never go away. You know, they may uh, be pushed back by public opinion temporarily. You know, I hope it's all but... part of a general weakening of the uh, extreme religious rights, certainly in our education system. I certainly hope so. Here's a quote from the article. I feel like if you give two sides of something, most people are intelligent enough to make up their own minds. Yeah. Well, that's the teach the controversy uh, tactic. Right. But, of course, the, that's intellectually dishonest because there is no controversy. You know, It also assumes that the two sides are equal. Uh, yeah, there's or, science and there's theology. <laughs> you know, they're, not, they're not comparable. And only science should be taught in science classrooms. Hear, hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, teach creation amidst Sunday school. Hey, perha- perhaps we should start a movement to teach science in in the Sunday school and religious classes. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. idea. It's, it's a, a hey, idea. teach the controversy. Teach you know? the controversy. Right. You got to right. teach both sides. The people who believe that your faith is wrong. I think we should also talk about Thor and Apollo and yeah. Uh, the final news item is also we're still in the evolution theme this week for the news items. Ann Coulter, you remember we. Uh, spoke a few weeks ago about in her new book, Godless, she spends the last two chapters basically attacking evolution. And she didn't really bring anything new to this entire discussion. She simply reiterated all of the standard classical creationist lies and nonsense uh, that's been around for you know for decades. Like there are no transitional species. Uh, you know, biological evolution cannot explain how the eye was formed. You know, the Cambrian explosion disproves evolution. I love that one. Now, the, the Cambrian explosion basically occurred about 580 million years ago, and that's when multicellular life first got big and complex enough and started to have hard parts that fossilized. So when that happened, you know, life first appears in the fossil record. You know, it had, there had to be some, you know, first period of time when... when Life started fossilizing and therefore started creating a fossil record. So, of course, there's an explosion of fossils where in older strata don't have any fossils. So they take this, you know, quote-unquote sudden appearance of life in the fossil record as evidence of creation. But, of course, we're not talking about, you know, horses and chimpanzees occurring in the fossil record. We're talking about, you know, one to two inch tiny, bizarre looking, you know, very primitive multicellular life forms. I don't, I don't know how they could possibly say that that is evidence of you know everything being created ten thousand years right. ago. Right. And Steve, isn't it isn't it the case though that it's it's not just a matter that they evolved hard you know hard shells and things so that that were more easily fossilized, but also because evolution kind of found out this this new idea, it it just exploded because it was such a such a good idea, such a a beneficial evolution that sure. that there was just an explosion of life, and that also a, is a reason why they're, they're so you know it, it seems to explode at that point. Right, although the explosion on geological time scale, which means you know, right. a few million years. Right. Just, these arguments are all so old and stale. Yeah, but not the eye one. Not the not the eye one, Perry. About the evolution of the eye, I'd never heard of that one before. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fresh and new. That one goes back to Darwin. I mean, you know, <laughs> all the way back to the beginning. But I mean, so this is Coulter. And Coulter was on the Seven Hundred Club recently, and it's always very funny, in my opinion, to, to when they're in within a friendly audience, they really let their hair down and say, say what they really think. They're not trying to sugarcoat it at all. And not that that Ann Coulter does in any case, but she really was so obnoxious on the show. Just the you know the transcript is uh, is interesting. She says, for example, there is no evidence for it referring to Darwinism. Not the evidence Darwin expected to find. It is what scientists refer to as a pseudoscience. There is nothing they will accept to disprove Darwin's theory. It's like tarot card reading. Uh, wow. uh, Hundred eighty degrees. Uh, really, it's just a, yeah. a totally upside down. The idea that you know evolution cannot be 
falsified. It's, again, been around for decades, and it's total nonsense. There were dozens of ways that evolution could have been falsified you know, after Darwin introduced the theory, and they all went evolution's way. Every single opportunity, you know, the, the discovery of genetics, for example, if hereditary didn't work the way it did, that could have falsified evolution, for example. Hey, look here. Uh, Coulter puts down a challenge. She says, um, by the way, they, meaning, you know, the uh, the liberals and, and believers in evolution, they haven't argued with me directly on on this subject. I mean, the left really hates me, but no one seems to want to argue about the Darwinism. Well, come on on the show, Anne, and uh, we'll be happy to uh, have, a, have a frank discussion with you. Maybe because she's you. a moron. I, I formally challenge <laughs> Anne Coulter to a public debate on evolution. Come on, Anne. She's, she's, she's trying to make talk. it sound like the like evolutionists are running and hiding from her because we don't know how to deal with all of her new sophisticated arguments. It's total nonsense. You know, if anything, she's being ignored because she's not a scientist, because her arguments are, have, are decades old and have already all been, you know, falsified. But, you know, if she wants to, if she's really going to try to go that route and claim that no one's willing to debate her, I'll debate her. Yeah, it's also like saying no one was willing to debate me on the existence of Santa Claus, so right. that must mean that uh, Santa Claus really exists. <laughs> Steve, man, that would make my entire year. I would get popcorn and sit down and just enjoy that so much. It would be our most popular podcast. I would, I would wager. Right, or whatever, any form it doesn't have to be on our podcast, but it'd be wonderful to get her. Sure. Just, you know. A little tough. I don't think she'd expect many, <laughs> many book sales of Godless out of our podcast. I, know, I get the, I get the feeling to be like debating a brick wall, though, and that's giving a little too much credit to brick walls. Right. <laughs> she would just gallop. Nice. I mean, you know, she wouldn't. I imagine her her, her last resort would be something like, um, well, you know, Darwin's gay, or <laughs> <laughs> you know. She'd say, she'd Darwin go, oh, calls nine yeah. eleven. <laughs> oh my! I mean, she's an idiot. They they do resort to basically ad hominem attacks against Darwin, you know. Well, anyway, if you know if a debate with her ever happens, it'll be it'll be fun. She'll be, be easy picking. So I'm sure she has no idea what she's talking about. Not, but, not scientifically. Uh, she can't get away. Her. She can't get away with that challenge. Trying to make it sound like we're we're afraid to debate her. It's nonsense. Well, we have a lot of emails this week. Uh, we don't have any guests this this week. Everyone is surprisingly is on vacation for the summer, so everyone's like, yeah. "Call me hmm. in the fall." <laughs> so we'll have a great fall lineup. <laughs> Call me in the fall. <laughs> uh, but we do have a, a lot of great emails, a lot of good topics. So uh, we definitely will use the time to get caught up on some of the emails that we're getting. The first comes from Chris Boven in Michigan, and Chris writes. First off, I love the show, easily one of my favorite podcasts. It's nice to get my weekly dose of skepticism, especially during the summer when I am away from college. I am just wondering what a skeptic's opinion on demonic possession and exorcisms is. I have heard some very convincing stories from Christian friends and the media that seem to defy explanation. Assuming they aren't outright lying, how do you explain this phenomenon? It would seem that mental illness can't account for every case. I don't think this has been mentioned before, but I could be wrong as I have not been able to listen to all of the older shows. Anyway, keep up the excellent work and look forward to hearing from you. Chris, P.S. Steve, you sound like a kind of like Ray Romano. Hmm. Heard that before. Did you ever get that before, Steve? Only, hmm. only since I've been doing this podcast. He's a third emailer to make that comment. Hmm, I don't know that I buy it. Hmm. But, I don't know. hear it. Now then, it's unfortunate <laughs> that Chris did not include, you know, one of the cases that right. defied explanation. I haven't encountered a single one that defied even cursory, you know, even a cursory glance at it and defied explanation. Yeah, but I think, but Perry, you're referring to cases with documentation, which is absolutely yeah, of correct. Course. And I think that he must be referring to cases where people are just reporting an eyewitness testimony. So if it's just anecdotal, then yeah, know. just anecdotal. I mean, the two things have absolutely nothing to do with each other. I, you know, sir, I've looked into this, and as we all have, you know, I've reviewed dozens of hours of taped exorcisms from you know local groups that that uh, that perform them. There have been a few that have been you know broadcast on TV. Uh, about 15 years or so ago, there was one broadcast on 2020, and uh, this one I think is. Very typical of the uh, of of exorcisms in that, on the one hand, you have the hype surrounding the case, the uh, the running commentary, which is trying to play it up as supernatural things happening. This was a young girl, a teenage girl uh, named Gina, 
the Catholic Church gave the okay to, to do an exorcism and broadcast it on 2020. And But if you just look at the video, if you just look at what's happening, not what the voiceover is saying is happening, it's totally pathetic. The, my favorite bit on that show is when they comment that you know, Gina was displaying superhuman strength. Meanwhile, there's literally two old ladies holding her down. It's, you know, Catholic exorcisms are excruciatingly boring. There are boring. Yeah, where's all the vomiting and the heads twisting around? Oh, they are horrible. (laughs) Now, and, and the subjects, the people who are having the exorcism done to them, Seriously, I have seen total amateurs just pretending to be whatever possessed by a demon do much better job than these people. It's pathetic. It really is. I mean, they here, here's a quote from again from the 2020 show. She so uh, they describe Gina as thrashing about, making ugly faces, yelling words that sound like in quotes "booga booga." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she literally <laughs> said "booga booga." I mean, oh, that's convincing. Was that the guy on uh, on uh, Bugs Bunny? Yeah, booga 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 booga. Wasn't that? Was it the same? I guy? mean, it's well, sad. obviously he was possessed too. Well, look, all right, but like like all like many of the of the things we discuss on this show, uh, this can also be very dangerous. And yeah. I yeah. have taken the time and effort to go out there and put together a top ten list. Of the top ten exorcisms <laughs> resulting in injury or death. So from the All Home right. Office in Cheshire, Connecticut, of the New England Skeptical <laughs> Society, we have the top yeah. ten exorcisms resulting in injury or death. Somehow I think this is going to be slightly more depressing than your average Letterman top ten, but go on. We'll have the uh, the top ten on our notes page. Why don't you just read the top five? Number five. Five-year-old Abel Bernie of, Satin, of Staten Island was killed by her grandmother, by her grandmother and mother, during an attempt to exorcise a demon that they believed caused Amy to have tantrums. Not being satisfied with vast quantities of mere water, these good women tied Amy down, forced her to drink a mixture of ammonia, vinegar, cayenne pepper, black pepper, and olive oil. They taped her mouth shut Ew, to prevent her olive from, oil. from spitting out the mixture, <laughs> and she expired. Police charged the women with second-degree murder, and both were sentenced between 12 and 25 years. Number four, in July 1996, five-year-old Brennan Spickard of Baldwin Park, Los Angeles, was beaten to death during an exorcism performed by her mother and two of her friends. All three women, who were taking methamphetamines, held the girl down and whipped her with a cheese board for two hours, stripping away several layers of skin and eventually killing her. All three women were convicted of murder. Number three... In August 1994, Hoda and a bear of England punched their mother to death. The daughters claimed their mother was possessed by a genie and said, quote, incomprehensible things. The daughters were st- sent to a state mental hospital. Number two, in May 1994, Lindsay and Janice Gibson were charged with killing their son. Janice had become convinced she was God, not a mere angel, mind you, God, and had convinced her husband of this as well. Janice first tried to expel demons from her two-year-old daughter by beating her in the face for ten minutes. When Janice tried to exercise her husband's boss, he called the authorities. However, the doctor refused to sign commitment papers requested by social services as he felt the woman was just a religious fanatic. The next day, Janice convinced her family, and especially her 12-year-old son, were surrounded by demons. She fed them a hearty meal and then forced them to vomit vomit up the just-consumed food. She then kicked her son out of the house naked and into the cold. Later, while her husband restrained the boy, Janice beat him repeatedly in the head with, you guessed it, a concrete block. When police arrived, she shouted, quote, He's already dead! We killed him, you stupid men! Just like the first Jesus! Unquote. Mr. and Mrs. Gibson were both found not guilty by reason of folle adieu, a rare psychiatric syndrome of psychosis, particularly a paranoid or delusional belief that is transmitted from one individual to another. And the number one exorcism resulting in death or injury... In April 1996, Simone Chapawa of Unden, Thailand, agreed to a ritualistic beating of her head and genitalia with a stingray tail by a shaman to exorcise evil spirits. After the exorcism began, she changed her mind and fled, only to be abducted later by the shaman who continued the ritual until Mrs. Chapanya's death. The shaman was charged with murder. Well, thank you, Perry. That was... uh... 
That was the most depressing thing I think I've ever heard in my life. There's common themes running through there, though. There's, yes. There's one, of course, is mental illness. Now, <laughs> the other is it's a family affair. It's often, often they keep it in the family. Right. Chris writes, you know, it would seem that mental illness can't account for every case, but it def- definitely accounts for a lot of them. Most of these people have a psychotic disorder. They have schizophrenia or whatever. They incorporate their religious beliefs or their, their culture or family's religious beliefs into their delusions, and they act out being possessed or... They believe they're the uh, the psychotic person may believe that one of their family members is possessed. That's usually what it is, and yeah. Then, and then it results in them killing them. Now, Gina, for example, getting back to the 2020 case just for a second, she was diagnosed with a, with a psychiatric psychotic disorder uh, by a psychiatrist, you know, who was quote unquote skeptical of of demonic possession. And although, you know, the 2020 show tried to spin the exorcism as quote-unquote working because she calmed down after she basically got tired out after a day or so of pretending to be possessed, but she still had to get admitted to a psychiatric hospital for a few weeks and had to get antipsychotic medication before the exorcism took. So that's a typical kind of story, that this is just one phase of of an ongoing, you know, mental illness that, that requires often hospitalization and antipsychotic medication. At other time, the other end of the spectrum is sometimes it's just kids being naughty, and the, it's just the the mother or the parents who are convinced that they're possessed because they just they throw temper tantrums. You know, they're going through the terrible twos, and and that's enough to make uh, uh, to make their mother think that they're possessed by a demon. So I've seen that too. I mean, that's talk about boring video. You know, I saw what one exorcism where the kids were three kids. You know, the mother was just it was a true believer. She had her three kids exercise, and, and the, her description of their behavior was, like, no worse than my kids. And they were sitting there just being a little fidgety, you know, sitting. They thought the whole thing, I think, was humorous. And well, nothing was... happened. Zero happened. Right. Yeah, I've heard people refer to your kids as little demons. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of these kids on the list were killed for having tantrums. Tantrums, yeah, you know. You know. Steve, I know someone whose uh, who's family member claims that uh, that their child was uh, possessed by a demon who uh, who made the child obese. Yeah. Well, that's Perhaps, the yeah. that's the fad now is uh using demonic possession to explain all kinds of everyday common ills like gambling or again being overweight or abusing medic drugs. You're you know, you're possessed by a demon of gambling or a demon of lust or a demon of gluttony or whatever. So it's like it's that it's a, that their version of self-help, you know, the quickie self-help um, method. You know, want to lose weight? Just exercise your demon of obesity. You don't have to, like, you know, do that dieting and exercising stuff. Just get a good get a good exorcism. Sounds good. Before we leave this topic, I'll just mention that the History Channel is doing a documentary on the history of exorcism and demonic possession, airing sometime in October, uh, in time for the Halloween season. And I mention this, and I know about it, because they interviewed me for that show. So your humble host may be making an appearance on the the History Channel show. So keep an eye out for it, and when I get an air date, I'll mention it. We get to see all 12 of your skeptical seconds. I was going to bet five. (laughs) We're taking bets as to how many seconds they'll use of you. They tape me for about three hours. They'll probably use less than a minute. Here's what a skeptic said. Well, I think, well, what Dr. Novella would have wanted to tell you was Just ask a scientician. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. Now, last week we asked our listeners what they who do not live in the United States if political correctness has infected the English-speaking world outside of the U.S. And we got a number of responses. Uh, we had a few from Canada, like this one from Chris Obansawin from Canada, who writes, PC is alive and well in Canada, much to the detriment of critical thinking and honesty. And there were a couple others that also supported that. We also got this one from Gordon McCormick in Ireland, who writes, political correctness is not a uniquely U.S. phenomenon. We have it in Ireland and the U.K., although more often you see people railing against political correctness gone mad than being particularly PC anyway. So, you know, so they basically have both ends of the spectrum, you know, uh, rampant political correctness and the backlash against political correctness, you know, which, of course, both of which we have in this country as well. Uh, so not surprising that it's not a uniquely U.S. phenomenon, but it is interesting you know, to hear from our listeners abroad. Steve, didn't Gordon have another issue he wanted to bring up? He did. I mean, the, his full email is on the uh, on the notes page, but he, he, he did comment also on our 
monkeys versus birds discussion of last week. Uh, he wrote, Hi, enjoyed the podcast. Finally got around to debating in a mature fashion the issues of monkeys versus birds. I would appreciate if your distinguished panel could answer the following important questions too. Ultra-humanite versus hawk girl, Batman versus Superman, and ninjas versus pirates. I never heard of ultra-humanite. I haven't either. I haven't. Hawk girl could kick his butt. Yeah. Good. I think it's just to, to quickly address that issue, hawk girl, Superman, ninjas, no, no contest. Wrong, wrong, wrong. No contest. No. Hawk girl, Batman, pirates. No. You were close. Batman to is going to beat Superman. No. What are you Batman. Drunk? Um. It, hey, there was. Hey, there was a comic book. <laughs> I have. Yeah, I have the. I have the comic book. He beat. Yep. Batman beat Superman. Batman is a human stinking being. That's the beauty of it. He whipped out the kryptonite at the end <laughs> and got Superman. Jeez. All it takes is a stupid rock. Gordon, to kill see Superman? what you started. What? See that's what you ridiculous. started, Gordon. Now, ninjas versus pirates is clearly that's ninjas. Come on. No. What's a pirate? Hello? He's going to stand around. Arg, arg. Ninja's going to crawl up the side of the ship and throw a right. knife in his neck. N- ninjas will win, but pirates are much cooler. Yeah, How many okay, ninja jokes fine. do you know, huh? Now, question number three. Stand fire. still, you black-clad fiend. And the guy's going to jump around <laughs> his back and stab him. All right, go ahead. Question number three comes from Stephen Grissom in Oklahoma. Stephen writes... Hey guys, I have recently discovered your podcast and just absolutely adore it. I always hear from you guys and other skeptical-minded sources that chiropractic is a pseudoscience and such, and I've briefly studied it, but I didn't discover much. I wonder because my girlfriend's father is a chiropractor. I've been very skeptical of his line of work, mainly because I trust honest scientists who have rejected chiropractic as a legitimate form of treatment. Uh, And basically he goes on to ask, what do we think about chiropractic? Well, this is a, a very big issue uh we did sort of save this for an episode when we would we didn't have a guest we'd have time to go into it in more detail and we've had multiple questions about chiropractic this isn't the first one it's just a representative question it's it's kind of a big issue i'll try to encapsulate it because you know chiropractic chiropractors and chiropractic is more diverse i think than most people realize but to give the quick summary it, it breaks down into two main flavors uh, straight chiropractic and mixers or mixed chiropractic. Straight chiropractic adheres to the original philosophy of chiropractic that was created by D.D. Palmer in the 18, late 1800s. D.D. Uh, Palmer was a magnetic healer. He was, you know, a bit of a kook, and he believed that he discovered a new principle of healing when he um, manipulated a deaf person's neck and they regained their hearing. Of course, you know he didn't realize that the, the, the pathway for healing at no point passes through the neck, but the ear bone's not connected to the neck bone. He, he decided from that from that one dubious case that uh, all of human disease can be fixed with spinal manipulation. Everything we he, he used a life force philosophy. There are many philosoph- you know, philosophies of, of healing that are basically categorized as life force or energy medicine. He, his term for life force was innate intelligence, and, and he proposed that it descended from God down through the top of our heads into our brain and then through the nerves to our entire body, and that this life force keeps all of our tissues perfectly healthy, and that all disease is a result of these subluxations or, or misalignments in the spine that block the flow of innate intelligence, and when an organ is deprived of its innate intelligence, it becomes diseased. That's that's straight chiropractic. That's about 30% of chiropractors who are out there still adhere completely to that to that philosophy. Uh which you know of course none of the basic principles have ever been established in any scientific way. It is really more of a cult than a profession. Uh about 70% of chiropractors are are mixers though and they run the gamut from basically accepting innate intelligence and subluxation theory to basically rejecting it. Um, and at the very you know scientific or skeptical end of the spectrum, which it's hard to get exact numbers, but by all accounts is a few percent of chiropractors, they, they do completely and overtly reject subluxation theory. But most chiropractors will accept it to some degree. So even if they are not, you know, a pure straight chiropractor, they still will believe to some degree that, that yep, there are subluxations, and if you fix those subluxations, that you could heal actual disease. Like, for example, otitis media or asthma or gastric ulcers, whatever. 
Now, that, of course, subluxation theory, innate intelligence is pure pseudoscience. Those claims of chiropractors have been studied and in, in, in you know, class one, you know, high quality clinical trials, and they have been completely and universally shown to be of zero effect, no effect. Chiropractic does not benefit asthma or otitis media or, or any medical illness. That's clear cut. Uh, despite that, though, chiropractors still continue, many will still continue to use these modalities. Uh, so they, they, are not, they do not alter what they do based upon the scientific evidence, which is my core criticism of them as a profession. However, about 70% of what chiropractors actually do does not involve treating medical problems. It involves symptomatic treatment of back pain. And there the issue is much more complicated and just to there's I provide links to to some published studies and summaries of the studies uh, on the, on the notes page. But the bottom line is this: that there is evidence that there is symptomatic benefit for spinal manipulation of acute to subacute, uncomplicated lower back pain. Uh, however, at the same time. The evidence suggests that it's no better than either physical therapy or standard medical management. So there's the claims to superiority of chiropractic uh, treatment has not been validated. If you're sick, wouldn't you rather go to a guy who went to medical school? Well, that's the thing. A lot of people don't realize that your average chiropractor doesn't have to graduate from medical school. That's right. It's not a well-known fact. Uh, Which is surprising. Yeah, chiropractors are not MDs. They do not have medical training, although they claim to, but those claims really are not substantiated. They do not have to pass any standardized basic medical knowledge exams. What are they called, DC, Doctor of Chiropractic? Or? They're always lumped in with naturopathy and, you know, that yeah. whole realm of... Fell at work, his chiropractor prescribed him a whole plethora of homeopathic remedies for yeah. all sorts of things. In the United States, chiropractors are the number one prescriber of homeopathic remedies. They also often will incorporate acupuncture into their practice. They Also, the, the you know, chiropractors have spawned a great number of uh, spin-off pseudosciences, uh, we spoke about iridology. Iridology was promoted in this country primarily by a chiropractor. Uh, applied kinesiology, which again is the notion that just quickly, like if you're allergic to something, if you just put that substance in your hand, it'll you'll become weak, and uh, they can diagnose the allergy based upon that weakness. But it's uh, it's just pure suggestibility. There again, in a blinded uh, study, it shows zero effect. So e- even those who do not adhere to the the core ideology of subluxation theory and innate intelligence those uh who are so-called mixers they incorp they frequently incorporate many other pseudoscientific modalities uh into their practice so it's a very 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 diverse profession you really don't know what you're going to get i mean on the but, far end it's just magic i mean it's it, just magical yeah. thinking yeah it is it's ridiculous steve i read uh, an interesting um an interesting way to debunk, uh, you know, one aspect of, of chiropractic that I thought was very, uh, very effective. One was that if it is true, if the, you know, innate intelligence is true and, uh, you know, if uh, nerves are impinged or, or worse, then you would just become rife with disease. Then how come quadriplegics or paraplegics just don't die from a million diseases because right. they not only have impinged nerves, they have severed nerves. Right. So, so why don't they just have diseases, you know, coming out of every orifice? I mean, to me, that that's just one yeah. one way to just completely, completely knock it down. And that's just the tip of the iceberg if you follow right. that reasoning through to its logical conclusion. Because there, you know, pe- pinched nerves is a known neurological entity. You know, we diagnose that all the time. So interestingly, when chiropractors diagnose a pinched nerve from a subluxation causing a medical problem, the neurological symptoms of a pinched nerve are not present inexplicably. And when people do have a pinched nerve with the neurological symptoms, there's there, that does not correlate to the medical illnesses that chiropractic philosophy says right. should be caused by. So there's no correlation anyway. And that's what you gave as a very extreme example of that. Yeah, why don't all of their organs fail? If if they're, all of their organs are now being deprived of innate intelligence, right. it's called by, bypass subluxation. Bypass subluxation. Okay. <laughs> it's like bypass surgery. It's complicated, Steve. You wouldn't understand. Steve, didn't they do um, experiments uh, on cadavers, sublu- subluxations, and things, and what force would be required 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of some some of the basic claims have been studied. For example, um, you know, chiropractors claim that with their manipulation they actually realign the spine. In fact, the forces that are being used are not are, would not do that. They would not actually move the bones on top of each other. They also don't study their the risks of what they do. I mean, they're probably generally low, but the bottom line is we don't really know because they're not systematically studied. It, for example, recently, you know, uh, um, there has been an emergence of literature in Canada and the United States looking at neck manipulation and the risk of stroke from torn arteries. Uh, and there's, you know, again, the absolute risk is pretty low, but if you, um, the the data suggests that. If you've had your neck manipulated, that increases your risk of a dissection and stroke by five times. You know, that, if that were a drug, that would not get past the FDA. And what about these manipulations they do on children whose yeah, bones have not fully developed? That's just messed up. Yeah. The next email comes from Robert Isaacs from Tampa, Florida. Bob! Robert <laughs> writes... Love the show. I have turned at least three of my friends into regular listeners. Well, good for you. By the way, everyone out there, turn, you need to turn on three friends to listening to our show. Yeah, it's like one of those pyramid schemes. Get yeah. to it. Do it. They told two friends and so on <laughs> and so on. I figured the best way at this point for me to make the world a more friendly place towards science and reason is to turn as many people onto your show as possible. One guest I would like to hear on your show is Carl Zimmer. He is a science writer and had a fantastic blog called The Loom. His blog is what piqued my interest in evolution and ultimately skepticism. The one question I have, which is tangentially related to your discussion of Aubrey de Grey, is what is your take on the concept of the singularity popularized by Ray Kurzweil? Ray Kurzweil uses this logic to predict a future within the next 30 years of superhuman artificial intelligence, massively expanded lifespans, etc. So, Bob, you're a big, yes. you're a big fan of this whole thing. Why don't you give us the, the quick synopsis? Okay, I've, I definitely have a take on this. Um, I, uh, I, I just wrote down a few things. So it's, if it seems like I'm reading, it's because I wrote it. Um, my, readers, my Reader's Digest answer that I'm sure Steve would prefer is that the singularity is inevitable as long as technology continues to advance and it's coming sooner than most people think. Now, uh, just a little background. Uh, singularity, some people might not be familiar with that, with that term. It, it's a metaphor. Uh, some scientists use the term singularity. Mathematics uses, uses it. Astrophysics uses it. Uh, you're probably most familiar with it in, in uh, reference to a black hole. The stellar remnant inside a black hole is, is, is called the singularity, and it's surrounded by, by an event horizon. And it, this is similar to that in, in that the black hole has incre gravitation increases to infinity, and you can't really tell what's behind the event horizon, and that's kind of like what this singularity is all about. So, so what, does it, what does it mean? The singularity represents an increase in technological sophistication that's so swift and profound that it has com been compared to a rupture in the fabric of human history. It would be like a, a colony of bacteria creating for themselves a sophisticated human-like culture in a day. So when, when might something like this, what would we see if, uh, if the singularity does come to pass? Ray Kurzweil, who's a big promoter of the singularity, as mentioned in the email, he envisions things like the merger of biological and non-biological intelligence, immortal software-based humans, and ultra-high levels of intelligence that expand outward in the universe at the speed of light. Now, th these are some of the things that he says. Lots of people have predictions, but as I said, it's, it's, you, know, it's re you really can't predict what's going to happen, and that's kind of mm -hmm. what makes it a singularity is that you really, you really don't know, what, you know really what's, what's going to happen. You can only kind of do these broad brushstrokes of, of prediction. Now, what, what can cause the singularity? Essentially, a lot of people see it as occurring when human or human-like intelligence is digitized and therefore subject to the famous Moore's Law, uh, or its more general manifestation that Ray Kurzweil came up with, what he calls the Law of Accelerating Returns. Now, this, this is a key concept because Kurzweil thinks that, that, it can, that because of this law, it shows that the singularity can happen. It can feasibly happen within, you know, his prediction is like around 30 years, you know, not 500 years, but he sees it happening as 30 years, and his law of accelerating returns, I believe, makes a very compelling argument as to why, why this is possible. So let me just go, let me just do a brief uh, review of what, what actually the, this law of accelerating returns is. This law describes the exponential growth of technological progress, the doubling of the rate of progress every decade which he, Ray has done, has done his homework, and he can show you throughout the course of, of many, many decades and even beyond that uh, how, how technology has progressed 
uh, not only exponentially, but but doubly exponentially. It's even more profound than than expo- exponentially. Most of what uh, most people have what Ray Kurzweil calls an intuitive linear view of progress, rather than the historically correct exponential view. So so what does that mean? People tend to assume that future progress will continue at the the current rates that that we're experiencing. So they see that, well, in 100 years, by the year 2100, yeah, we'll have about 100, 100 years of progress as, as, it's, as it's happening now. It's been shown, however, that te- technological progress is exponential. This means that the first 25 years of this century will see comparable advances that the entire 20th century saw. It also means that this century could see not 100 years of progress, but the equivalent of many thousands of years of progress at current, current rates. This is why people tend to overestimate the near future. That, that's because we tend to leave out the necessary details, but they underestimate the potential aco- accomplishments farther in the future because they ignore exponential growth. And that's the singularity in a nutshell. I, I, you know, forgive my ignorance, Bob, but I, I don't think that I would be able to discern between singularity concepts or theory and science fiction. Well, that's that's exactly how it seems. And, I mean, going to the moon and a, a lot of the accomplishments we have today were, was seen as science fiction 20, 30, 40 years ago. So, yeah, of course it sounds like science fiction because we're saying that technological advancement is going to increase so fast that it's going to you know, r- you know, rip the fabric of our culture apart. It's going to be so profound. So I'm sure lots of it sounds like science fiction, but that doesn't mean that it's it's not feasible. So uh, you know, I think that there there are there's a lot of truth to what Kurzweil says in that yeah, the, you know, a lot of the uh, of technological advancement does accelerate, uh, and that technology changes our society in unexpected ways. No one in science fiction really predicted the the information revolution, the internet, and how that's transforming human civilization, for example, uh, or the the incredible you know rapid uh, progress in computer technology. But I I think that he is being, in my opinion, uh, either overly optimistic or maybe just a little bit overly simplistic in. And in a couple of ways, one is that I, you know, I'm not sure how. First of all, you would quantify technological advancement. I think that that would that'd be a hard thing to do. Not, not really. Well, there's, you know, I think you have to make choices about how you're going to quantify, it, and those choices, you know, can, will often reflect biases. But even if we just forget that, put that aside, I, I think there's the problem of lumping all technology in together. Uh, I think that some technologies will accelerate faster than we think others slower than we think and we can't predict which is which for example you know 50 years ago everyone thought we would be flying around in cars and we would have cured cancer neither of those things came to pass different things came to pass that nobody was thinking about 50 years ago so there are examples of technologies that either stagnate or or slow to a crawl because we run up against unforeseen complexities or or barriers to progress uh, and then barriers are suddenly broken through and then there's a period of incredible you know technological advancement and then once that plays itself out we run into another plateau or another barrier so i think that you know technological advancement is more unpredictable and uh, it's more, I guess, I guess, you know, you could say that uh, I would adhere more to a punctuated equilibrium, you know, view of advancement rather than a uh, a continuous, you know, a, a progression sort of model of advancement. The, re- the research disagrees with you, as a matter of fact. If, uh, if progress is so chaotic and unpredictable, then why do so many examples of it produce smooth and predictable trends that you can track and make predictions from that, that he has made? Yeah, but those trends only survive for a period of time. That's my point. If you look at the history of computing devices, there there have been there have been no less than five paradigms of computing devices. You can start from the late 1800s when we had mechanical calculating devices like used in the 1890 census. Then you can go to, to relay-based uh, computers, the ones that broke the Nazi Enigma code. Then the next the next paradigm was vacuum tubes. 
Then after that was transistors. And then after that, integrated circuits. These are, these are major paradigm shifts, th something that we will see again when, when silicon uh, fades away and we, and we segue to what, you know, quantum computers or, or another paradigm. Through all those paradigms, the law of accelerating returns has, has, been, has been constant. It, it, has, it has survived those paradigm shifts. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Bob, but that is not necessarily true of all technologies. Like, for example, if you use cancer therapy, to, to go back to my previous example, and some, any reasonable measure of treating cancer, let's say survival, that certainly has not had accelerating returns at the same rate as computer advancement. Some, uh, some cancers, the survival today is almost no different than it was 50 years ago. Others you know, are, are cured 80 or 90% of the time. And nobody 50 years ago knew which was going to be which. So th there are other technologies that are that are virtually unchanged. There's a litany of you can list things like DNA sequencing, communication speeds, electronics. But you can also pick uh, other technologies that are not changing. We're flying around in jets that are not significantly different than the jets that we were flying around in 50 years ago. You get on a passenger jet, yeah, there's more, there's better entertainment on there, but it's still basically the same piece of technology as 30 or 40 years ago. Where's the acceler? There's, where's the accelerating returns on that? The space shuttle was built in the 70s. How about dialysis? Hasn't changed. Yeah, there are some there's some Bob, if you pick and choose your technologies, you can make that case. But if you really look at all technologies, you can pick and choose ones that have been pretty damn stagnant. So, And if my point is you can't predict which are going to be which because they're, they're all subject to unforeseen barriers and breakthroughs. And that, if you take a really long-term view, that's going to dom that will dominate more than any kind of slow, predictable you know, advance, in my opinion. And that's why I also think that you, know, you, you mentioned, which I believe is, is very true, you overestimate short-term progress. That's because we extrapolate jubilantly into the near future, and, but we underestimate long-term. I think that's because on the long-term, the breakthroughs and barriers uh, will all even out. Because eventually, you know, it, it may be, be herky-jerky on the, the scale of decades or even centuries, but you know, o you know, over longer periods of time, you know, we eventually will find some way around you know, most obstacles, technological barriers, uh, and the, the long-term advancement is, is more predictable the more long-term you get. So I do think that a lot of things that Kurzweil speaks about will come to pass. I don't think we can say how long it's going to take. It's also unfortunate that, that, that Kurzweil sounds so much like Criswell. The, the uh, fortune teller from the Oh, Criswell. Jeez. <laughs> Remember that guy? Chris oh, yeah. Will. That's an odious comparison. I don't disagree, Bob. It is. <laughs> I just said it was unfortunate that there was a uh, uh, phonetic similarity. Well, I, well, I, well I, Bob, Bob, yeah. your, your, job, your job is to get Kurzweil on the podcast. I, I'm going to try then, my darndest. And then we will talk about it some more. Absolutely. But, but let's move on. The, the next email comes from Rich Wallace in Ireland, and Rich writes... I'm going to try to cut to the chase of a long email that is, again, will be on our notes page, but I want to cut to the chase of his question. I was talking about a, a, a leaflet that was handed him, and he said that there's a section about the evils of homosexuality, and one of the quote-unquote facts which it claimed proved that homosexuality was indeed evil was that the average life expectancy of a gay man is 43 years. I found this very hard to believe, so I asked him if, he, if it was a typo, and he said no, that because of AIDS and other diseases associated with gay men, the average age for queers, his word, not mine, was just 43. I told him that that was total crap, but I had no evidence to disprove it. So he's basically asking, is this true or not? What's, it's what's so the not true. <laughs> it's so outrageously <laughs> not true. Um, it just sounds ridiculous on its face. It, it it's common sense almost. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, if you if you were to think about it just based upon the number, um, for that to be the actual average death age for all gay males, then HIV-negative gay men would, on average, have to die at about the age of 46. And if even half the gay male population stays HIV-negative and lives to an average age of 75, an average overall lifespan of 43 would imply that gay males with AIDS would die at an implausibly early average age, like 11. Yeah, right. <laughs> 11 years old. So that's just based on the numbers. And that comes... So where did uh, that number come well, from? Well, the actual number originally came from a guy known as Paul Cameron, who is a researcher who's pretty controversial. Um, and he's often used by um, gay rights opponents. And in this case... 
he, he did this study and here's how he came up with the number. He actually looked at different um, alternative gay community newspapers um, in urban areas and uh, you know the kind that you you find like at bars and are have all the personal ads and stuff in them. He then counted up all the obituaries and news stories, uh, wrote down what age each of the dead people died at, took the average, and then published that average as the estimate of gay life expectancy. There are just so many things wrong with that. It's just like uh, Bishop Usher combing through the Bible for their ages. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Well, there's so many sources of bias in it. That's just horrible epidemiology. Now, I... I, I was itch, I wanted to know what the actual data was, so I did a literature search to, to find some published epidemiology on the life expectancy of gay men, just to see you know, what I would come up with. And there was a lot of published data on that. Uh, here is I have a link to one that was fairly representative. So what do you guys think? So uh, there's uh, and most of these are comparing the um, life expectancy from the 80s to the 90s to see if there's a difference, you know, with, with newer HIV treatments. So at its worst, so at the height of the AIDS epidemic, before the newer uh, HIV treatments came into place, what, where do you think the life expectancy for gay men bottomed out? And I'll tell you just for background, for all men, life expectancy for all men is around 78. Well, Steve, I don't think that that question is answerable. And I mean, you can, you can guess and you can, I don't know how you know the studies you're going to quote came up with it, but it's just standard epidemiology. You, you know, you you use you know data. Yeah, but where's that data coming from? I mean, well, yeah, there's all data has you know has methodological uh, issues with it, but I think Rebecca's trying to say is how do they know who was gay and who was straight? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's impossible. It's completely impossible to come up with a realistic number. I'm just gonna put. That I disagree. There. It's not impossible. There, there, I mean, epidemiologists have been doing this for a lot of you know doing statistics for a, a long time. You've you've only got the ones that are out of the closet, and then you know. I mean, how are you determining? Well, I mean, you know, the, the methods are, are published in the various studies, and they use different methods. Most of them use some sort of uh, either survey where they directly ask people. Of course, and those are anonymous, so they, you know, people are not, you know, it's, it's an anonymized data, so they have, they have no reason to hide, you know, their sexual orientation. Um, you can also use, you know, hospital records or other things like that. So I just think that there are so many different variables in in a case like this, not least of which is being able to actually accurately define who the hell you're talking about. I mean, that's that's a huge hurdle to overcome that I just don't think that it's reasonable to expect it to come up with an accurate number for something like this. They're fair, they're peer-reviewed, published, you know, the, the methods are fairly legitimate. I, I mean, I'll take a look at them with an open mind, obviously, but I'm just saying that, that I just, I can't imagine a, a way that they can get around those problems, but I'd enjoy seeing that. So given, given those limitations, and, and they were upfront about the assumptions in their methodology in terms of percentages of the population who were gay, for example, they came up with a figure of actually of 54 years life expectancy at the ebb, at the low point, and the more recent numbers at 66. Yeah, so with modern, so with treatment, with with the with the current treatment of HIV, and it, and you know, but by the time you collect this data, you know, it's several years old. So, uh, and life expectancy in HIV positive individuals is increasing with treatment. So, 66, which is a long way from 43, that, and that's about. And I looked at several studies, and the numbers were all roughly the same. You know, it was somewhere you know around the low upper 50s to low 60s in the 80s and the high 60s in the 70s which is and it's less than the non-homosexual community which you would of course expect because you know of AIDS i mean it's a very real epidemic that is disproportionately affecting that the gay community and and does tend to you know cause people to die at a young age you know 20s 30s 40s so those those are the best numbers that are, that are out there that are published which is is interesting and again very different than the number that's being used and the, of course the methods you know counting the average death in you know obituaries and <laughs> alternative lifestyle magazines i mean you know that's, that's that the, those methods are worthless well yeah i mean just, it's uh, just outrageously yeah. flawed right quite so but again the perp- the purpose of that was not to get an accurate number but to just generate propaganda for of course. ideology yeah. right. well, the of course. words the word queer kind of <laughs> the queers kind of gave it away <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
them queers. Yeah, and the number has been repeated over and over again. Oh, why not? It's never going to die. Yeah, it's a, it, get, it gets into the popular consciousness and that it gets repeated ad nauseum without anyone checking their facts. The only way that number will die is if somebody comes out with 36, then 43 will go away. And they'll, they'll, they'll... <laughs> you know, um, it was actually repeated by um, the former... Education Secretary William Bennett. Was it really? Which is what oh, that's, dis- that's disappointing. Yeah. That is disappointing. Yeah, that's that's one of the ways that it really got out into that's the terrible. Uh, that's bad news. Well, what do you want from a gambler like that guy? <laughs> 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 uh, well, let's let's uh, let's move on to our science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are genuine, one is fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is fake, which one is fiction. One. And of course, you can, of course you can play along. You can't use your, Bob, you can't use your psychic abilities in science oh, or fiction. Oh, man. You have, to, you have to do it the hard way like everybody else. The theme for this week is, ironically enough, with this group, intelligence. Are you guys ready? Right. Yeah. All right. All right. Number one, a new study finds that predators prefer prey that have smaller brains. Number two, a new study suggests that drinking apple juice may improve memory in Alzheimer's patients. And item number three, a new study shows that daily flossing is associated with lower scores on standard IQ tests. So to recap, do predators like prefer to hunt stupid prey? Can apple juice improve memory in Alzheimer's patients, or or does flossing make you stupid? Evan, uh, why don't you go first? Okay, so here we go. So number one, <laughs> uh, I think that's believable because if the prey are stupid, they're probably not smart enough to be running away from the predator. So I'll say that's true. Uh, apple juice uh, imp- improves memory in Alzheimer's. Was that it? Yeah. Versus daily flossing uh, makes people less intelligent? Well, it correlates, correlates with. with, yeah, correlates with. It's almost a toss-up between those two. I'll say number three is fiction. Um, it just sounds more ridiculous than two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Perry? Uh, apple juice? You know, that sounds stupid. And the uh, first one is, yeah, okay, I, I could buy that. Right, they're dumber, you catch them. So true, true, when the middle one's false. How's, does that work? <laughs> okay, number two is fiction. Yeah. Rebecca? Oh, man, I, I have no clue. I'll just be different and go with one. <laughs> okay. Bob? I'm, I'm hot and cranky. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. That, that wasn't one of the choices, Rebecca. It should have been. All right, so you're going to go with number one. Yeah. So, Bob, we have, we have an even split. Rebecca says that number one is fiction. Uh, Perry says number two is fiction. Evan says number three is fiction. Where, where are you going to put your nickel? Um, let's see. Apple juice may improve memory. That is, that is correct. Uh, choices between one and three. Um, let's see. Flossing lowest score, uh, test scores. That just seems too stupid. <laughs> uh, so, uh, number one, you can... Oh man, this is a tough one. I can't even choose between one, one and three. You can um, do it, son. Pick a pony and bet it. There you go. I'm gonna. I'm, I'll go with Rebecca and say and say. That was one. probably the wrong choice. Three, but right. one is three, three is too. Uh, three is too obvious. All right. All right. Let's start with uh, number two. <laughs> Since it's obviously true. <laughs> Uh, number number two is true as Bob as Bob said. What are you talking about. Uh, I'm going to start drinking apple juice. I'm telling you. you don't have Alzheimer's. It doesn't matter. Well, you know, it, that's that's this is doesn't matter. Oh. Doesn't matter. That's that's arguable. Did you hear that singularity yeah. discussion? Yeah. Well, wait, Steve. What about apples? No, is it just apples. Hold on. No, hold on. You got to right, give, give it the, the full implications of this study. So this, they what they did was they uh, looked at. Um, the the study there was a study in mice, not people, and they uh, were looking at the activity of 
acetylcholine, which is an important neurotransmitter, which is necessary for memory. Now, the, the pharmacological treatments for Alzheimer's disease increase the activity of acetylcholine. So we know that that model works in sort of treating, uh, symptomatically treating Alzheimer's disease. What they did was they, uh, they uh, had a model uh, uh, in mice where they, they basically had one group of mice where they um, fed them a very nutrient-poor diet, uh, especially poor in antioxidants, thinking that therefore they would be a little bit nutrient deprived and have increased oxidative stress, and that that would be a reasonable model for the kind of stresses that the brain of Alzheimer's patients are under. They gave apple juice concentrate to you know to one group and not to a control group, and the group that got the concentrate had more acetylcholine activity. Then, which could you know theoretically correlate with 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 improvement in Alzheimer's. Because that's the again that's the neurotransmitter that is treated in those patients. Now, uh, this does not mean that a normal brain would benefit from apple juice, right? So this is only a, a, a specifically stressed brain, uh, but it may have implications for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. It doesn't mean that if you're normal and you drink apple juice, you'll get smarter. I didn't know you were talking about stressed out mice brains. Yeah, so that'll be perfect for Perry. Perry, start drinking apple juice. You'll help your little stressed out rat brain. <laughs> I am a I am a great many things, but m- mousy is not one of them. Not talking about Thank physically, you. just the brain. <laughs> I, I still claim not to be a rodent. All right. Let Let's go to number one. A study finds that predators prefer prey that have smaller brains. That is also science. Uh, and and the reason is as Evan and Perry suggested. That smaller-brained prey are make are easier to hunt. They're they're less uh, able to avoid predators. They're less able to ad- adopt uh, new strategies. Or, <laughs> they's uh, ignorant. Un- un- so, yeah, they just hey, they're, what's, they're easier. What's chewing on my easier, leg? Hey, easier uh... prey. <laughs> now, these uh, these studies were done in mammals, uh, and this probably does. You know, it is one of the uh, evolutionary forces that has been driving increased intelligence in the mammalian line. Steve, I have evidence to the contrary of this so-called study. How do you yeah. explain the continued existence of Ann Coulter? Oh, huh? <laughs> Still Poor alive. Man. All right, it's all the sympathy. It's all the sympathy she gets from. If me, your little I? theory is true. <laughs> Next time she's next time she's on CNN blabbing about evolution, you should expect to see a bunch of tigers just jump in from nowhere. I don't think you're going to see her on CNN very much. Yeah, that's for sure. Where <laughs> on Fox? Fox okay. News. Sorry. There you go. There you go. Next time next. she's on Fox News, I want to see a wolf oh, nice. go for her jugular. <laughs> Which means. That number three is fiction. New study shows that daily flossing is associated with lower scores on standard IQ tests. I know it. Fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, what, there was a study, which was just recently published, uh, which is what I derive this from, that this new study drives home the importance of toothbrushing and dental flossing. This study, study does show that uh, brushing and flossing is important to good dental hygiene. It reduces the risk of both gum bleeding uh-huh. and halitosis, which is a fancy word for your breath stank. Perry, Perry. <laughs> that's exactly no, right. It's, yes, and you should true. brush your tongue as well as your teeth. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Could you now, imagine? Not surprisingly, this study was published in the Journal of Periodontology. It's even got your name in it, Perry. You still got it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Before we close, let me give the answer to last week's skeptical puzzle. Last week, the puzzle was this. All the electricity was out in Aberdeen. None of the streetlights or traffic signals had power. A dark limousine was cruising down the newly paved blacktop with its headlights off. A young boy dressed totally in black with no reflector stepped out to cross the street. The moon wasn't out, and the boy had no flashlight, yet the driver stopped to let the boy cross the street. How did the driver see the boy? Steve, can uh, I answer this? Because I saw one of the people on our forum actually answered this, and it was perfect. The answer is, the boy was on fire. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one I saw through. That one's true. <laughs> Now, I thought that was great. The simplest, the simplest explanation is that it was daytime, that it was, it was day, 
And, you know, I got a very many correct answers for this puzzle. You know, so it, most people got it correct. A, a couple of people thought it was a little challenging. There were some creative answers that, of course, you know, could be correct. The, the challenge here, and this was, you know, this was the simplest puzzle we've given out so far. Uh, some of the previous ones have, were, have been, you know, more challenging. This one was definitely towards the simple end of the spectrum. Although, I think it's one of those things, if you think of it, it's really easy. If you don't think of it, then it seems impossible. And you know, the challenge is that, of course, you are encouraged to assume that it was nighttime, but by the nature of the way the, the, the thing was presented. Yeah, we get it, was Steve. Presented. Right. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> so uh, this, the new puzzle for this week was sent in by a listener, by Roel Winters from Belgium. Uh, and he, he sends, he's in this, this is, this is a logic, this is a pure logic puzzle. <laughs> and this is, this will test your knowledge of thermodynamics. Uh, Roll sends, writes, sends in this puzzle. You have just made a cup of coffee, but haven't put the milk in yet. The doorbell rings, so it may take a couple minutes before you can drink it. If, if you like your coffee hot, is it better to add the milk before answering the door or after you return? So... Okay, kind of straightforward. This is just a thermodynamic logic puzzle. All right. All right, and we'll give, we'll give the answer to that next week, and thanks for sending that in, Roll. Remember, if you want to send me in a suggestion for either the skeptical puzzle or uh, science or fiction, remember to send it just directly to me, snovella at com. Do not send it to, to all of the, uh, the panel. Well, Rebecca, guys, thanks for joining me again this week. Thank you, guys. Was, uh, Good episode. Fun as usual. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, it's a northeastern oh, euphemism. Well, good thanks night, again everybody. for joining me, everyone. <laughs> good night, everybody. <laughs> good night. Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society. For information on this and other podcasts, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Slow burn days, problems, proofs, endless delays.